Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I've got uh, shit. I don't even know how to put it. One of my favorite guests of all time, I think, is 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 appropriate. Uh, I talk about this a little bit on the podcast about how we met, but <clears throat> I was out at Paul Check's sixty second birthday recently, and he had asked me, I think, if uh, if I had heard his podcast with Sean O'Louder, and I'm I'm not sure if I'm saying that name right. It's funny. I try to attempt it at the end of the podcast, but Sean. <laughs> who uh, is the author of Setting God Free and um, had been on Paul's podcast. I remember Paul telling me, like, you got to fucking listen to this. It's going to blow your mind. This guy was a Catholic priest for 48 years, speaks a ton of different languages, and he has, you know, one of the most dialed-in understandings of spirituality on the planet, which is awesome coming from that background. And um, so I, I, was, I was pumped, but I had missed that podcast, and it was while I was down there. I didn't have short time, so I just said, is it on Audible? He said yes, and I put the... I, Bought the book and just chewed right through it. I actually found myself staying up late at night. You may hear some violin in the background. That's my son playing, and I think it's I think it's lovely. So it won't be on the podcast, but anywho, you might hear it during these this uh, this intro. Anywho, I could not put the book down, and I was fucking. It was it was the best thing ever. And we were watching uh, the Sinead O'Connor documentary, which had a lot to do with the Irish Catholic Church. Uh, in the 1980s and 90s, and uh, a lot of stuff that I didn't know, and it was just really framing a world that uh, I didn't realize I was growing up in. You know, I had my idea, my concept of what life was like growing up in, you know, what I consider to be a small town in Sunnyvale, California, Cupertino, California, 50, 55,000 in Cupertino, 120,000 in Sunnyvale. Um, that was a small town to me. You know, it wasn't San Jose, it wasn't San Francisco or Oakland, it wasn't LA, but the world is much different when you leave your small town, however small it is. You know, even if it's a big town, the world is much different when you leave LA. You're like, fuck, dude, <laughs> LA's, LA's its own thing. Um, anywho, so, so there was big framing going on, on on what the world is actually like in different places uh, around the time when I was forming my concept of the world. Sean is fucking brilliant. The book is absolutely incredible. It's one that I couldn't put down. Um, I mean, I... I the under the spiritual understandings that that Sean has I, are on par with anyone that I could think of, from Ram Dass to Eckhart Tolle, anyone who's walked the earth at the same time that I have, that I've really leaned on for a general understanding. He fucking gets it inside and out, and because he was so steeped in orthodoxy, he understands um, really how to speak to what's wrong with with orthodox understanding from from the Abrahamic religions, and he does so beautifully. There's a trial in this book for Yahweh, the trial of the century, the trial of the millennium, really. And um, it's entertaining and and funny and fucking brilliant all at the same time. So we, we cover that. We cover a lot of other things. We really dive into, into Sean's background, which I find just fascinating and awesome. Um, you know, he, he really has an amazing, amazing background from an amazing grandmother early on that really showed him how to pierce the veil and, uh, and I could see that I could see like, oh, that's, that's, that's where it was. You know, these seeds were planted at a young age for him to be able to see through to the truth of God. So anywho, you guys should all go to the show notes and buy this right now. If you're like me and, and really love listening, Sean reads his own book. He's got a fucking beautiful Irish accent, which you'll get to hear on this podcast. Um, I try not to dive too much into the book just because the book is, is one that stands, you know, I don't want to give away shit. It's like, I know you're going to, if I know someone's going to watch a TV show or a movie, I try not to tell them much about it. I don't want to fucking spoiler alert and that kind of stuff. So in this podcast, 
I really don't give too much away on, on the book, but I can assure you it will be one of the best things you've ever read or listened to as it was for me, especially if you grew up um, going to church or in any, in any regard, whether it was a synagogue or you know something else from, a, from an Eastern faith. Like the, he's, he's bridging the gap here for many, many people. He also has a great understanding of what's happening in the world today. And, and what we're up against and really proposes some, some beautiful stories and anecdotes of how we should be moving forward and what is the next phase of humanity. And I find that to be fucking incredible. So we spent a decent amount of time on those topics. And if you're still on the fence, here's the thing. If you're still on the fence about what's happening in the world, do you think 2020 was a blip, like 9-11 was a blip in history? And thank God that's over. Now we're back to normal. If you're still there, that's okay. There's a book coming out. And I'm going to interview this guy very soon. His name's Seamus Bruner. No, Seamus, I think that's Sean Allaire's, Allaire's uh, brother. So Seamus, another Irishman, who's <laughs> I think from, from the U.S. Um, it's a book called Controligarchs, Exposing the Billionaire Class, Their Secret Deals, and the Globalist Plot to Dominate Your Life. Everything in this fucking book checks out. It's everything I've been tracking. And I love this book too, because it's, it's, it's pulling a lot of, it's connecting a lot of pieces for people including myself, where I can say, yeah, this documentary on the Rockefellers uh, pans out with the purchase of the American Medical Association. And then, you know, when they started uh, the Rockefeller Association, you go through all these things, but there's a lot to connect. And I find that this book is going to explain in plain English what's happening in the world for a lot of people. So if it's a little over your head when Sean and I get into that, trust me when I say we're not, we're not just talking out of our asses about our, our fears there, there, is, there are things happening right now that are as plain as night and day. You can track it through following the money, which is always a good angle to look at. And you can track it through different organizations and, and literally the words that come out of these people's mouths. So um, it, it, unfortunately, it's not far-fetched. But uh, listen to this. And if you're still on the fence, when I interview Seamus in the near future here, you'll get a deeper understanding of what we're talking about but what Sean's offering is not doomsday shit. He's not offering uh, panic at the disco. He's simply stating this is how we move through that world. This is how, uh, in the face of all adversity and, and potential evil, how we come into the best version of ourselves and operate. And I just love that. I love Sean. I uh, really appreciate having him on. I will have him on any fucking time. He has the time and availability, too. would love to meet him. He's also out in NorCal, which is really cool and coincidental. Um, share this far and wide. If anybody you think would find it interesting, particularly anybody who's coming out of uh, some type of indoctrination from organized religion, if they're still steeped in it, it might be a little bit of a rude awakening. I joke that um, my mother-in-law likely wouldn't like setting God free. It might blow her head off. So uh, if it's a clear no, understand it's a clear no. If there's a potential yes and curiosity, then absolutely this is for them. Share it, like it, uh, leave us a five-star rating with one or two ways the show has helped you out in life. And Organifi will be sending you my favorite products. One person per month is going to win through the end of the year. They started this last year. They've kept it up. Uh, reviews help the show grow, and that's why they're doing this. I love Drew Canoli, love Organifi. They've been a very long-time sponsor. They make amazing organic supplements that taste phenomenal. And uh, the lucky winner, there's no luck involved. You leave a good review with one or two ways the show has helped you out in life on Spotify or iTunes with your handle on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and my team will reach out to you, and the best review wins. Easy, plain and simple, and that helps the show grow. So thank you to Organifi. Thank you to Drew and the team there. 
Last but not least, support this show by supporting our sponsors. Sponsors like Organifi.com, Paleo Valley, Lucy.co, Cured Nutrition. Many of these sponsors have been with us for a very long time. They are hand-selected by myself and my team. Uh, and if, if it's selected by my team, I gave a thorough, thorough check and to see what these guys are all about, if they are like-minded, if what they're doing is good for, for people. And if I feel like that my listeners will benefit from them, then I'm going to bring them on. So uh, the, these, these sponsors have been with us for a very long time. When you purchase from them, you help the show stay fiscally in business. You help us keep the ball rolling and allow for me to dedicate as much time and energy and space as I do for this podcast, which I fucking love. This is one of my favorite jobs out of the many hats that I wear. Organifi.com slash KKP. Remember to use code KKP for 20% off everything in the store. If you go to Organifi.com slash KKP, you can grab a sunrise to sunset kit, which will cover you with the red, green, and gold. And you're going to get 20% off that bundle using code KKP. This is the easiest way to see what Organifi is all about. These are their longest standing bestsellers. The green is a phenomenal drink that tastes great. It gives you many of your greens you're not going to get in the supermarket. It also has adaptogens like ashwagandha, which is going to help balance the nervous system. So if you get a little over-caffeinated, ashwagandha can help tune you back. It's not going to make you tired. It's just going to relax the nervous system. Uh, There are many other things in here that can get you going and and help purify the body, come into a more alkaline state, and be ready to go. Long races, it's good to have the greens right before. Any type of long endurance is going to help you with the green juice. Red juice is my favorite from a workout standpoint, though, and the reason for that is there are mushrooms like cordyceps sinensis that's going to help produce more ATP in the mitochondria and give you more cellular energy, muscular energy, and brain energy, which you do need. And There's a lot of of mitochondria in the brain and the heart, so super important there. It's got beetroot and a number of other things that help you get vasodilation through the increase of nitric oxide in the body. This is super important, whether you're heading into the bedroom, the boardroom, or, or... Uh, to the gym. Either way, you want more increased blood flow to all the areas that your body is using at that time. And no matter what your body's using at that time, increased blood flow means increased oxygen and increased nutrients, and you're going to have better endurance and better better stamina. Uh, The gold is a great way to wind down. It's absolutely phenomenal. If I had a long day, I'm going to come home. I usually make the gold with some raw milk, or I will have it um, with a, a little bit of full fat canned coconut cream. I just whisk it with one of them little hand guys. And it's phenomenal. There's a whopper of lemon balm extract, which again, isn't going to knock you out, but it just relaxes you. It changes, allows the body to shift from go, go, go to rest, be still. There we go. Check it all out. Organifi.com slash KKP. And remember KKP at checkout for 20% off everything in the store. We are also brought to you today by my homies at paleovalley.com. Remember to use code Kyle for 15% off. That's K-Y-L-E, my name, for 15% off everything in the store. These guys have a whole host of amazing supplements, beef sticks, all sorts of stuff, uh, organic food bars, some of the cleanest things you can put in your body, stuff that I have no issue. I'm actually excited when my kids want one. There's no limit. You know, if my if my son asks for uh, some one of these fucking low-carb lollipops, he might get one on occasion but it's not good food. It's just the lesser of two evils. When he asks me for a beef stick, if he wants five of them, absolutely, he can have five of them. It's not going to mess up his gut. The beef sticks are absolutely incredible. But our favorite thing from paleovalley.com is their bone broth protein. It's not processed with high heat, which can denature and coagulate the protein, making it harder for the body to absorb and use. It's not extracted with harmful chemicals. 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. These guys not only talk the talk, but they walk the walk on regenerative agriculture. Everyone they work with is about it. They're all in the game of restoring the earth through the soil 
and through everything that we do from top to bottom. Healthier soils, healthier grasses, healthier cows, healthier humans because of that. The cows are never given antibiotics, steroids, or hormones. And one of the most critical pieces of all this is that it's made from bones and not hides. That's why it's called bone broth protein rather than collagen protein. Most companies use the hides because it is cheaper. When collagen is sourced from the animal's skin, we miss out on all the extra nutrients and restorative benefits of the bones and the interior of the bones. Super, super important there. Um, It costs a little bit more uh, uh, to Paleo Valley because of that, but I can assure you these two guys have competitive prices and is absolutely phenomenal. They have an unflavored one that you can mix in with smoothies, um, pretty much anything you want. That's not gonna, it doesn't really have a flavor at all. It just mixes in easily. You can also use the unflavored to make uh, pudding and different things like that. If you're used to using, you know, you might get a little gelatin, but you can use that that bone broth protein to add, even add some thickness to it. Or they have a chocolate flavor and the chocolate flavor is my way of making hot cocoa. I'll take that with some hot water and a little butter and whisk it, or I'll warm up some of this raw milk and whisk it in, and it is fucking lights out tasty. Every single one of my kids loves it. They ask for it nightly, and we go through bags of this bone broth protein faster than anything else in our household. 100% pure, no fillers, no flow agents, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. Check it all out at paleovalley.com and code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, at checkout for 15% off. We're also brought to you today by my homies at Lucy.co. Lucy.co, L-U-C-Y.co, has been one of my longest sponsors. I am a fan. I'm a huge fan of nicotine for many reasons. Nicotine comes from the tobacco plant, and tobacco has been bastardized over the years. We could do a whole podcast on that and probably should, but everyone knows it. It's not something that needs to be taught to you. How it's bastardized, what's going into it, those kind of things, I think that could be a little bit interesting. But what's even more interesting to me is the fact that Many of the plants throughout histories, we have our own receptors for, right? We can endogenously make our own. We can exogenously take something from outside ourselves, from mother nature to help fill those gaps. We have receptors for these things. And acetylcholine and nicotine fit like a glove in a hand. It's really incredible. Acetylcholine is uh, really one of the things that all nootropics are trying to create more of. It's prescription required. But you can take choline supplements or eat egg yolk, and you can take certain herbs like macuna, purines, different things like that. Um, Or maybe not macuna. That's L-DOPA. That's a good one too, though. Huperzia serrata. There's one common one that's found. And Bacopa or Huperzia, they're going to take choline and increase the conversion of that to acetylcholine. This is what's responsible for cognitive function, memory, language, uh, uh, learning a new task, all these things, you want acetylcholine present. And when nicotine is present, it's unlocking. It's hitting into that receptor and unlocking it. You got to think about this. A receptor is like a door lock and the, the hormone or neurotransmitter is the key. Once they engage and twist, that unlocks the thing that you're actually trying to get to. And so really, when you have nicotine through any type of form, but specifically, you want these from fucking good forms that aren't going to have deleterious effects. This is why Lucy.co is such an amazing company. You can get nicotine in two milligrams, four milligrams. They have several different flavors. They make it in gum, lozenges, pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. Check this out. This is one of the fastest ways you can get to the nootropic land and accelerate your ability to learn, remember, and get shit done. Lucy.co, that's L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and use promo code KKP at checkout for 20% off everything in the store. Last but not least, we're brought to you by curednutrition.com slash KKP. Long URLs, all this shit's in the show notes. Just one click it from the show notes. 
We all know that a full night's sleep is essential when we're working towards optimizing our overall health. Cure Sleep Bundle, which combines their best-selling Zen and most potent CBN, is the answer to ensuring that getting a full night's sleep every night is accomplished. Zen is a blend of functional mushrooms, cannabinoids, and adaptogens, while CBN is a lesser-known cannabinoid found in the hemp plant. These supplements were designed to support the two most critical stages of your body's natural sleep cycle, REM sleep and non-REM deep sleep. Cured's raw CBN oil contains 30 milligrams of CBD and 5 milligrams of CBN. Together, the CBD and CBN create a synergistic whole body effect. When it starts to kick in, you'll notice every inch of your body soften into a deeper state of relaxation as if you're lying beneath the comfort of a weighted blanket. Once you're asleep, Zen is there to assure that your body is successfully cycling out of non-REM deep sleep and into REM and back again. Some people can't fall asleep. Others can't stay asleep. And then there are those that fall asleep and stay asleep but still struggle to spend enough time in each sleep stage. No matter what is keeping you from your true rest and restoration, the sleep bundle is your solution. Think of it as the one-two punch for a body and brain reset. I absolutely love this stuff. I've been on it for months now. It is a game changer. Uh, if I run out, which I have in the past, there's no real side effect. I don't come off of this and I'm like, oh God, I can't sleep. And I think that's great. Because it's plant-based, it's 100% natural. There's no melatonin in here, which is chronically overdosed in the market and makes people, many people feel groggy. I wake up feeling refreshed and ready to take on my day like nothing else. Uh, check it all out at curednutrition.com slash KKP. And right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can grab Zen and CBN in the sleep bundle for an extra 20% off Cured's already discounted price by visiting www.curednutrition.com slash KKP and using the coupon code KKP at checkout. With this extra discount, you're getting 36% off the regular price. Yep, that's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash KKP and coupon code KKP at checkout to save an extra 20%. And without further ado, my brother, Sean Olara. Welcome to the podcast. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, my brother. This is so good. You know, we were wrapping a little bit before the podcast, and uh, I'm so excited because there's, there's, you know, there's quite a few people that Paul Check sends me to, and I was actually out at his place, and I remember, you know, when he gets really excited about a podcast, he's like, oh, there's a guy, you know, I just interviewed who's a 48-year Catholic priest, and he understands spirit as good as anyone on the planet, you know, and he's like, I'm so excited for you to listen to this one. And for some reason, it just slipped through the cracks. I didn't get a chance to listen. I'll link to it in the show notes, the podcast you guys did. Because Paul always does because a great job, you know, in, in the long-form podcast. But right then, I got uh, Setting God Free on Audible. And I could not put it down. I mean, it was just literally not, I was staying up late. I always know that I'm in a good book if I, if, I, if I have to stay up late or I find myself not falling asleep as I'm listening, but like wide awake till 11 o'clock at night. And then I really should turn this off just so I don't fuck tomorrow up, you know? So I... <laughs> <laughs> um, absolutely love it. And, uh, and you have such a brilliant background. It's, it's, it's actually really exciting to find, um, someone with your life history speaking in the way that you are about God and spirit and, and, um, the things that you've uncovered. And I've uncovered these, some of these truths, you know, at, for lack of a better term, but, but some of my own realizations are inner remembering 
has happened through plant medicines. It's happened through fasting. It's happened through sweat lodges and, and, and really just having the little seeds dropped from indigenous elders and people that I've worked with. You know, my boxing coach, as I mentioned, was a, a mestizo, Aztec, Mexican man. And uh, he passed away, but he really, he held a container around me that allowed me to flourish and start to really retain a lot of the stuff that, that you uncover here. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to go as deep as you can into what life was like growing up in Ireland, what led you to become a Catholic priest, and where along the way did you start to kind of bring in these truths that were maybe counterintuitive to what you were being taught and what you were actually teaching people? Right. That's a great, that's a great question, Kyle. And so I started off life, I'm the, um, uh, I'm the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn. My parents were very young when they got married, they were 19, and um Interest. my father was the eldest in his family. And so my grandmother had a baby who was actually two months younger than me, my uncle Noel. And so we were raised together. And so my mother and my grandmother were pregnant at the same time. And my mother won by two months. So I'm born in October, 1946. And my, my uncle Noel is born in December, 1946. So my grandmother persuaded my mother to give, to give her a loan of me so I could be raised with my, my uncle. So we were raised almost like twins, although I'm two months younger than him. So I spent the first six years of my life then living with my paternal grandparents. And my great-grandmother was alive still. She was alive until I was about 10 years of age. And uh, I couldn't pronounce her name, so I, I called her Muddy. And Muddy was about uh, five foot tall and about four and a half feet wide. And uh, <laughs> she, she was a total Christian mystic. Particularly, she had this extraordinary relationship with Mother Mary. And she would talk aloud to Mother Mary, and I'd be privileged to these conversations. I mean, I could only hear one side of it, but I presume that this was the norm, that you could, uh, you could dialogue across the veil. And in Gaelic, we have a term for that. It's called a, a chayaloith. And a chayaloith means a thin place, a place where the veil between the mystical and the mundane is diaphanous. And you can, you know, conversations happen and the fairies come through, you know, the fairy folk come through. And so it was obvious to me that my great grandmother was constantly moving across uh, through this veil. So I presume that was, that was the norm. So it's like mysticism was kind of the, the birthright of every human being. And I believe it actually is. And then at age six, my mother came and took me back. And now I'm raised by my maternal grandparents. And so my mother's father, I, I call him Daddy Jim. And he was like, he was a druid in the sense that he was a brilliant Irish step dancer. He was a constant musician and he was the best storyteller I've ever come across in my entire life. And he filled me up with all the great mythology of Ireland going way back to, before the Celts to what are called the Tuatha Dé Danann, the people who shape-shifted. Allegedly about the year 600 BCE when the Celts, you know, uh, attacked Ireland. They were called the Milesians at that stage, and they'd come from uh, Central Europe. And they defeated the Tuatha in two great battles at Moitura. And uh, they made an agreement with each other that the, uh, uh, to divide the land of Ireland equally between the two groups, between the Tuatha and the Celts. But the agreement was that the Celts got all of Ireland above the ground, and the Tuatha Dé got all of Ireland under the ground. And so they shapeshifted and became what we call as the little people or the fairy folk. And so the, these were really, really important and real for me as a child growing up in Ireland, you know? So they were, everybody took them very, very seriously. And my grandfather had encounters regularly with these and would talk to me about them. So hey, there's really interesting mix of 
mystical Christianity and druidical pre-Celtic spirituality. And so um, I decided I, went, I was a really good athlete. I didn't go into, into boxing and stuff like that, but I played an Irish game called hurling. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's played with a stick hockey stick. It's the oldest ball game in the world. It goes back to 1287 BCE. And um, it's played with a stick like a hockey stick. And the ball is like a baseball size. And you're not wearing any protection. There's 15 aside, a lot of physical contact. You know, and it's, the ball is traveling at 95, 100 miles an hour. You know, and there's a lot of physical contact. So I played that until I left for Africa at age 26. And so um, at the end of high school, I'd represented my high school and my college in hurling. But I decided to want to be a priest, but I was really embarrassed about it because it sounded like a really wimpy thing to do. You know, I was, I was a jock. So being a priest, I didn't tell my parents until it was about time to leave to go to the seminary. So I go to my mother. We're a very poor family, so I never got any pocket money. And uh, I said to her, they told me I needed a full physical to make sure that I was a real boy before they would accept me. And so I needed uh, 10 shillings to go to the doctor to do a full physical. So I go to my mother and I said, I need 10 shillings. She said, what do you need 10 shillings for? That was like about $3 at the time and a lot more than I'd ever get. So I said, I need to go to the doctor. Why are you going to the doctor? Are you sick? No, I'm not sick. If you're not sick, why are you going to the doctor? So then I tell her. So um, that was the way I broke it to them. And so then I got to the seminary at uh, age 18 and then spent the next eight years studying psychology, spirituality, uh, Bible study. Uh, and I was also attending the university and um, studying uh, pure mathematics and mathematical physics. And so then at, uh, at age 26, I'm released on Africa. And my mission is to go and convert the heathens, you know, to the light of Christ. And I realized really, really quickly that they had much more to teach me than I had to them. So it reminded me of something I'd learned earlier on. I was raised kind of bilingually, uh, Gaelic and English. And so all of my education was through Gaelic. I learned math through Gaelic and history through Gaelic. And I would spend many of the summer vacations in areas in Ireland in which Gaelic was still the mother tongue. And I had a fascination with uh, proverbs. In Gaelic, we call them Shanochel. And Shanochel literally means ancient words. So I spent one summer holidays in a village called Khoe, collecting proverbs from the elders. And I'd go from house to house and say, give me a proverb and tell me when in what context I'd use it. But I always remember one old man saying to me, he said, if Christianity had never come to Ireland, we could live according to the Proverbs. And he was absolutely right. Because stories are the archive wisdom of any culture. And Proverbs are the kind of the one-liner distillations of the stories. So when I went to Africa, I found myself like, I felt like it was in biblical times. The area I lived, I lived in a semi-desert area with people who had been nomadic pastoralists. And I'm learning, I learned four different languages there. And I'm learning their mythologies and their folklore. And so I began to say to them, you know what? If Christianity had never come to Africa, you could live according to the Proverbs. So that's what I was doing. I was trying to cross-fertilize my Proverbs and my stories as an Irish, you know, Catholic with their stories. And that's how I spent my time, just cross-fertilizing so that we could learn from each other and create a kind of a, a mega story, you know, that re represented the, the real depths of the human psyche. So... Uh, I, I very, very quickly realized I wasn't there to convert anybody. I was there to kind of cross fertilize with them.
That's so brilliant. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I've, my mother-in-law actually has done a lot of missionary work. She went to India and um, she's still, you know, I, right when I was reading it, I started thinking of her because she spent 10 days with us and I was like, eh, maybe, you know, in 10, 20 years, I can, I can do that. It might blow her head off right now if she read it. But um, I wondered how many times, you know, like what, what it takes, you know, is likely an open heart and obviously where you started with having your grandmother and the, 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 all the seeds that were planted at such a young age in, in your spiritual and mental garden were already there and, and ready. So when you went, like you could, you were in a position to receive the wisdom and the knowledge and the teachings of these different cultures. And, and so many people that go on missionary work are fixed in being the, the you know, the elder, the teacher, no, this is, this is how it works and that kind of thing. And um, I just think that, that that's such an awesome, an awesome thing that, that you were able to take that with you in a place where then you could then receive more indigenous wisdom. And, and instead of, you know, really forcing what you had been taught to them, you were just soaking that in and seeing were there parallels? How did this look? And I think that's, that's absolutely incredible. That's beautiful. You're absolutely right. And so I'm reminded of uh, a phrase that Carl Jung used. He, he talked about Gnostic intermediaries. And a Gnostic intermediary is somebody who is really well-versed in two totally different systems and can cross-fertilize them to their mutual benefit. And so I think that's true, not just interculturally, but for me, it is especially true between science and mysticism. So I coined a phrase many years ago, I called it a mysticist. And a mysticist is somebody who's well-versed in real science and also in mystical spirituality and can cross-fertilize into their mutual benefit. People like maybe Thailand de Chardin. And so I really believe that that's the future of the human family. It is cross-fertilizing these two because we're stuck at the moment with a, a fundamentalist spirituality which has shot itself in the soul and a fundamentalist materialistic science that has shot itself in the head. And we're faced now with a God-shaped hole in the human psyche. And our job is to kind of wed, you know, mystical science we do with mystical spirituality. That, that's our job. And I saw my function in Africa was to try to look at the, these great cultures. And one of the things I realized very quickly was I began to ex experience past lifetimes and to really understand uh, reincarnation for the first time. You know, I'd heard about it, but it didn't make any sense to me. But then I'm living with tribes of people who have a belief system in reincarnation. But it was a very in interesting system. So when a baby was born uh, among the Kalenjin peoples of East Africa, it would be given three different names. The first name had to do with they would, um, the circumstances of the birth of the child. So if I asked the child, you know, what is your name? And he said, my name is Kiprop. I knew that he was born when it was raining. If I asked a girl what her name was, she said, I know that she was born during a famine. So the first name told me exactly the circumstances of the child's birth. The second name was called which meant the porridge name. And it was a special name that only the mother could use of the child. And if the child was, you know, being obstreperous or even later on as a teenager being antisocial, the mother would pronounce this special name and the child would just go, you know, center. And then the third name was this. They'd call in an elder of the tribe who knew the ancestry of this little baby. And he started naming off the ancestors in chronological order. And when the child sneezed, they'd say, ah, that's the ancestor come back. 
So they believed in reincarnation that the ancestors kept recycling themselves. So it was my first real exposure to a group that actually espoused reincarnation. And then since then, I've had many personal experiences of my own reincarnations. And so I know that I've been a druid in the past lifetime. I know I've been a Catholic theologian. I know I've been a heretic. Uh, my very first one was being a young Tibetan girl giving birth to her firstborn child. So I was obviously a Buddhist. And so the idea of being prejudiced at this stage by being male or white or Catholic or Irish didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And so I began to see, okay, this is just a new incarnation, a new configuration to see if I can overcome the prejudices of this uh, uh, present configuration and realize that the configuration doesn't matter. All that matters is, can you still learn to love with this combination of factors? You know, are you going to get stuck in the, uh, the externality, externalities of the factors and buy into the prejudices of your group? So that's one of the reasons why in my time in Africa, it was easy for me to listen uh, and not just to preach. And how, how old were you when, you when you were in Africa? And, and another fact that I'm that I'm coming to mind is like, when you enter the seminary, you were you were young, but you already had these pieces within your heart, for lack of a better term, opened up. Did did you have anybody that was in the orthodoxy that kind of was leaning more on the mystical side of things, or was it just fucking orthodox? You know, old school. This is the way God is. This is what you read. This is what you recite. This is how you teach when you go see the heathens. You know, who, who was on the team? Were there anybody that you could count on there to keep that alive in you? Or was this something that was reawakened once you got to Africa? It was, a, it was an interesting combination, Kyle, because I had several people, including my own spiritual director, a guy called Eamon Hayden, who's still alive and a dear, dear friend of mine at this stage. He's known as late 80s. But he was real traditional Catholic, but he had a, a heart of gold and was a deeply loving man. And so he held his truths lightly. You know, he wasn't kind of promoting or he wasn't a Bible temple in any way. He was much more open. But definitely the teaching was very, very orthodox. So it was only after I'd actually gotten to Africa that um, I could look at the beauty and the love of these people and divorce it from the, um, the articulation of it. So I wrote my first book in 1983. I went to Africa in 1972. And uh, I wrote my first book in Swahili in 1983. It was called Ukweli Ninini, Truth, What Does That Mean? And I wrote it as a story of the Christ child visiting a village in East Africa and interacting with the kids, you know, and answering their questions. So it was a story form. And so <clears throat> I was trying to articulate at that stage the really, really important truths of spirituality, not just of Catholic Orthodox teaching in response to the questions of the children and the responses of this of Christ child. So that was probably my first articulation of a, a pan-spiritual uh, understanding of, of theology. So, so those earlier people, you know, although they had orthodox viewpoints, they were held in hearts that were loving hearts. And so it wasn't kind of stereotyped or kind of set in concrete. Yeah, that's it. At least if the love is there, it's going to be less... Um there's less of a confining teaching, even if they're still holding the truth inside as this is my truth. You know, I think, I think with, with the heart open, it's a little easier to, to, to be in a state of allowance. Like, all right, you know, even, even as a parent, you think if I truly love my kids and I think they're going the wrong direction, I'm going to allow that to a certain degree. I'm not going to force them to do everything the way that I want them to. You know, I could, I could see that as a, as, um, 
you know, potentially some of the orthodox, but if their heart is open saying like, okay, you know, he believes in some of the more mystical things and, and maybe that's from his upbringing, but over time we'll come to the same place or I'll, I'll you know, it, it, there's more of an allowance there I could see taking place. The reason, the reason I bring that up is because as we were talking before the podcast, um, when I was hanging with Paul Chak on his 62nd birthday, we were watching the documentary on Sinead O'Connor. And that was a real eye-opener for me because, you know, I, I was born in 1982 in Northern California. And, you know, the Bay Area then, I mean, it's funny, you think of Silicon Valley and all the, all the ups and downs about it now. But, I mean, at, the, at that point in time, you know, we're, we're 20 years post-psychedelic renaissance, sexual revolution, all these things. And a lot of that stuff stuck around, but people went back to work. They started businesses. They started to integrate that. And, um, you know, I remember seeing... When I was like six years old, I saw two guys kissing, and I remember asking, I was like, why, why, why are they kidding? We were in San Francisco, and I was like, guys kiss guys? And my mom was like, sometimes, and that was it. You know, like, there was no fucking, it was just like, okay, cool, two guys, sometimes they do that, you know, like, no big deal. And, um, and then there were places, you know, like, when we, we moved to Central California for a little bit, and I don't know how it is now, but at that point in, in the late 80s, my mom was in real estate, and nobody would buy a house from her. And she claimed it was because she was a woman. So we wanted to move back to the Bay. We did. Her real estate career took off. It tracked at least, you know, that that story tracked a little bit. And um, making my way outside of California, I could see like different parts of the United States operated completely differently. But I thought, you know, in the 80s, like the world was a certain way, as most people would think, based on where they're from. And so going back in time, you know, I had bought a lot of the, you know, Sinead's a radical, she's, you know, this and that, you know, because of, of what she was saying, you know, uh, and, and the position she had, you know, when she tore up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, like, that was a big fucking deal in American history, and everyone, you know, every pundit on earth came up to say, like, shame her, how dare she, blah, 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 you know, um, Joe Pesci went on Saturday Night Live and said, you know, it's right in the Goodfellas days, he said, she deserves a good slap, you know, and he's got his Italian accent, and it's like, man, and everyone's cheering, but to see, to see, like, what she went through and what the Irish Catholic Church actually looked like in that timeline in the 80s and 90s was mind-blowing, like, there was no chance for abortion. There was no chance for, for any women's rights. There was no chance for any of this stuff. And it was like that, that's really what she was up against in the same timeline. You know, and for me, it was like, you know, my mom could get a job doing whatever she wanted and, and sure, maybe some places she'd have it a little harder than others, but in the Bay, she was totally fine to literally do whatever she wanted. She could sell, she made, you know, six figure income year after year, you know, and it was like, she's very successful. And I think about that, that's my, kind of my counter there, you know, like in, in worldview with where these places were at along that timeline. And, you know, being that you're quite a bit older than Sinead, you know, you've gone through and, and you were steeped in that, you know what I'm saying? So like, this is how I'm trying to, to match up. Like, what was your experience like with what was portrayed on TV and what her experience was like is, a, is you know, those are, those are the things I'm trying to connect there, the dots. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It makes, it makes perfect sense, Gary. And so it's interesting to me that, um, it was Lord Acton who famously said, um, <clears throat> power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Ab absolutely. And the backstory to that is, Lord, this was in the 18, late 1860s. Lord Acton was a, a, an anomaly in the sense that he was a British aristocrat who maintained uh, his Catholic upbringing. And he was a very dedicated Catholic. But at this stage, you know, Pius IX is trying to create infallibility He's trying to create a doctrine of a papal infallibility. So, I mean, it's amazing that the church existed for 1,870 years without figuring out that the Pope is infallible. And now suddenly this guy wants to declare infallibility. So he calls the First Vatican Council. 
And uh, Lord Acton very famously said, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is no way anybody should be declared infallible. But it got ran through and it was kind of a, a kind of a sop to price the night because he just lost the, uh, the papal states. The, uh, the kind of the papacy of the Middle Ages had owned whole swipes of Europe. And now Garibaldi was uh, leading the freedom of the Italian people and taking back the papal states. So Pius IX was kind of had, you know, got it in his nose. He needed to be compensated in some way. So he wanted to declare himself infallible. So they pushed through this doctrine of papal infallibility in 1871, which was a total disaster. Now, so it's interesting that in Ireland at this stage, Ireland had just gone through a very, very difficult period of British occupation where the Catholics were subject to the, uh, what are called the penal laws. So Catholic priests were killed on site. They were beheaded if they were, they were, they were found. It was illegal to be Catholic. It was illegal to own a horse that was worth more than five pounds at the time. It was illegal for a Catholic to live within five miles of a city. It was illegal for a Catholic to get educated. And so they were totally uh, suppressed. And it was the Catholic priests who held them together. They were educated on the continent in big Irish colleges in Louvain and in Spain, and then snuck back into Ireland. And they created what were called hedge schools, where they were educating little kids. They were teaching them Latin and Greek and uh, geometry, little kids, you know. So they managed to keep, you know, education alive. And so it was the Catholic priests who allowed, you know, a spirit of freedom to prevail all through the 1700s and up until 1829 with the, what was called famously the Catholic Emancipation Act, where finally the British Parliament allowed Catholics to be legal and priests to be legal. So for that entire period of the time, it was Catholic priests who were the saviors. And now in 1829, you know, they're recognized and now they're the, 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 the big guys. And of course, now again, power begins to come in and power begins to corrupt. So between 1829 and like 1960, they're grabbing a hold of the Irish population and even of the Irish constitution. And now it's become a, it can be like a kind of a radical, almost like an Islamic state. And so by the time that she kind of gets, gets there, her, she as a prophet is talking about that situation. I'm sure if Sinead had been born in the 1700s, she'd been on the other side of the equation and advocating mightily for the freedom of, you know, and the, and the uh, kind of um, respect for the Catholic clergy. So it's a question of uh, where is the group at any one stage of its evolutionary trajectory? Now, I'm seeing that uh, there's a need at this stage in, in Ireland even and here uh, for some kind of a, res a, re um, a return to spirituality. I think we've lost our spirit completely. And it feels to me like that uh, we're living in a times when uh, uh, God is being destroyed from the human psyche. Uh, I, I like to seed my dreams before I go to sleep at night. I put out an idea and say to uh, my soul self, give me a hit on this. And a few months ago, I said, I want to understand what is the difference between sin and evil? And I woke up about three o'clock in the morning and here's what I got. And what I heard was sin is the individual transgression of a culturally created precept. It's made up. Sins are just made up. Whereas evil is a cosmic conspiracy using human intermediaries to separate souls from source. That there literally is almost like a cosmic conspiracy yeah, using you know, even off-planet entities, uh, conspiring with you know, entities on the planet to kind of totally destroy religion and the family and little children. 
So I started a group a few months ago called uh, Mama Bears and Women Warriors to try to fight for the rights of little children and the extraordinary indoctrination that's happening in our school systems right now. So we have swamped on the other side. So trying to maintain a balance between real spirituality on the one hand, without kind of uh, kind of straying into kind of fundamentalist, moral, moralistic thinking, holding that balance is really, really, really difficult. And we keep swinging from one side to the other. So we need to find a middle place that honors deeply our spirituality, you know, but that divorces it from kind of the hegemony of any particular religious group. That's brilliant. I assume that you listened to, to Chuck's podcast on Lucifer, Christ, and Naraman. It was brilliant. Yeah, from yeah. Steiner stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, I think of that as a balance point. And, and to me, it actually makes more sense to even, you know, to, uh, and you may know this too from, from reading into older texts and things like that, that, that Satan or the devil loosely became one being. But prior to that, there were differences, you know, between, you know, these two gods or these two, you know, demigods and, and, that one was drawing you to elevate, you know, and, 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 and connect you, but also in a way that, that, you know, this is, this is Maya's illusion. It's no longer important. You want to, you know, levitate past this thing, uh, be a certain way now so you can go to heaven and never return to this place. You know, like the, this, this is all bullshit. Nothing here matters. You're, you should be focused on the next place. And then the other, of course, you're only flesh and bones. This is the only thing that exists. And, uh, you know, we, we should be fully focused in this place and don't even, don't think about anything else other than that. And it's, it's funny to see, you know, where this shows up kind of in the ladder of, of, um, you know, your the orthodoxy that says this life is bullshit. You should be working towards, you know, get, being a good boy or a good girl and going to heaven or even new age philosophy where it's like, you know, ascension is the whole name of the game and you never want to come back here, you know, that kind of thing. And then um, scientism, you know, where you, or atheism, where you have these concepts of like, this is the only thing that matters. The universe is completely fucking random. I love how you break apart each of these individual things throughout the book and really, really, you know, you, 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 you expose the whole gamut of what's true, what's not true, where, where it needs improvement. I think that's such a beautiful piece because it's really, you know, we're, we live in a world now where, where you know, our, li- our attention pan has been shortened and shortened and shortened. And so we want the meme. We want the one-click thing. We want the headline to read and then swipe right. We're fucking done with it. As opposed to actually looking deeper into that, why is it that a, a headliner would suffice? We, a lot of people aren't actually looking into the thing, but the fact that you really open these up and uncover top to bottom, where it's right, where it's wrong, where it needs improvement, I think is such an important piece. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And so years and years and years ago, I came up with my own version of uh, what I consider to be fundamentalism in any arena, whether it's religious or economic or political or whatever it is, that fundamentalism always goes through four stages. The first one is that you reduce a very complex phenomenon to a bumper sticker, you know, because that's our, our, like, our attention span. So it's like you could say everything you say about an issue with just a, a one-line bumper sticker. That's the first stage always. The second stage is then you have to identify some kind of an enemy figure or create one if none one comes handy. The third stage is you have to vilify and even dehumanize uh, the enemy. And then the third part, you have to attack them. And I see that again and again and again. I saw it, for instance, in, in Rwanda. Uh, uh, with the uh, between the, the Hutu and the Tutsi, where in a period of three months, nine hundred thousand Hutu uh, Tutsis were murdered by the Hutus, 
And what they do is you reduce the kind of the complexity of an African nation down to a one liner. Yeah, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. The Tutsis being the bad guys. And then secondly, you kind of dehumanize them. They call them cockroaches was the term they used for them in their language. And then the third thing is, you, you know, you identify them as the problem and then you attack them. And 900,000 people were killed in the three month period. Now, that's happened all over the world again and again and again. It happens in Mao's China, it happens in Pol Pot's uh, Cambodia, it happened in Stalin's Russia, it happens in, uh, again and again and again in the Armenian crisis, it happened in Ireland in the, the famine, the alleged famine in the 1845, 46, 47, which wasn't a famine, it meant that just a single crop potatoes failed, but because of the British colonial presence you know, and the, the extraordinary kind of oppression of it, it was the only food people had to eat. And so the population of Ireland went from 8 million people in the 1840s down to 4 million people within 10 years through death and through immigration. And so again, you get the uh, oppression of a people with the British press portraying the Irish as these lazy bastards who couldn't get off their arses, you know, and with a decent day's work. And so it becomes really, really important then that we not resort to kind of a simplistic kind of analysis and solutions to extraordinarily complex phenomena. I think the, the piece you just brought up was something that I was actually curious about um, just in, in looking at the world right now. If you think about, you know, like there, there are some bumper stickers that actually you know, our, our apropos for the time we're in, right? Divide and conquer, again, is something that we see, you know, as you're, that you're speaking to. Um, you know, control, control the narrative, control the people. We've seen that since from 2020 going forward. And control the food, control the people. There's been 120 food and meat processing plant, uh, plants within the United States. I think, I think 115 in the United States alone, 120 plus in North America alone that have been blown up in the last two years. And the media's not talking about this, but I mean, in, none of these things before, like, you know, even if it's reported somewhere, it'll just say still under investigation. Like, we're not going to make a claim on this. But all previous times a meat or food processing plant was on fire, it was arson, right? Somebody set it on fire. So all every time in recorded history, somebody set this on fire. We don't know yet, right? Times 115 or times 120. It's pretty mind-blowing. So you control the food, control the population. And I think of, you know, with what happened in Ireland, um, with what it looks like potentially the, the, the table's being set for that here, so that that's that's it's it's a little frightening in, when it when it comes to that you know and it, it is frightening when I come to when I start thinking about things like that. I totally agree with you, and so that to me is a typical situation in which I see you know, evil is the kind of the cosmic conspiracy using human intermediaries to separate souls from source. That the agenda behind this is, is, is kind of uh, there are multiple agendas behind it. I think the first one is to significantly reduce the world population. I had a, a powerful um, a vision about ten, 10 years ago, actually it was 2012, in December 2012. There's a creek that flows through my property here called Pina Creek. And I spent lots of time down there, you know, just sitting on the side of the, the creek. And I went down there a few years ago and there's this man, an astral being, sitting on the side of the river with his feet dangling in the water. And he's just wearing kind of dungarees, like an old farmer. And he got a piece of grass and he's chewing the piece of grass. And I sit beside him and I pluck a piece of grass and I'm chewing it. And in my mind, I say, I wonder if he's going to tell me a story. And he turns to me and aloud he says, yes, I will. And he tells me a story. He says he's part of a group of people 
who move throughout the universe and the galaxies and are seeding life in different areas. And he said, I've done this thousands and thousands of times. And I can predict very accurately how each project is going to go up to the time when a species evolves, which is given the gift of free will. And at that stage, all bets are off. I can never predict after that how it's going to work out. Up to then, fairly straightforward. Almost like a mathematical algorithm. I can predict exactly what's going to happen. Once they're gifted with free will, the ability to make their own choices, all bets are off. And he told me at that stage, this was 11 years ago, he said, your species is facing what he called a trifurcation into three groups. Homo, Homo sapiens, sapiens sapiens is facing a trifurcation point. <clears throat> and the first group he called Homo sociopathicus. People who are absolute sociopaths and psychopaths who are dedicated to controlling the world's resources and including the people of the planet. And the second group he called it Homo artificialis. They're going to create robotic, robotic cyborgs that would be programmable and hackable. And the third group he said is Homo spiritualis. And these are people who will resist Homo sociopathicus and refuse to become Homo artificialis. And there's going to be a titanic struggle. And at this stage, it's not obvious who's going to win. But be aware of the fact that that's the, you know, that's the situation into which you parachuted in this incarnation. And I see that, you know, all around me, <clears throat> this extraordinary kind of um, agenda, using every possible excuse, whether it's burning of the factories, whether it's the fires in, in Maui, whether it's the cause of the lockdown, you know, whether it's the, the transgender movement being foisted upon little kids in schools, whatever it is, to literally destroy the family unit, to kind of totally destroy childhood and the innocence of childhood, to destroy religion, <clears throat> the family system, in order to create utter chaos in which the numbers can be significantly reduced and we can be persuaded to become cyborgs, where, you know, allegedly there'll be huge benefit. You won't need, kind of, need keys to get into your house. They'll be, it'll be embedded in your wrists, you know, where you can buy by just putting your wrist against something. And of course, these cyber currencies, it means they can obliterate you. You don't even exist if they choose to, uh, to make you non-existent. And so that, that's the, uh, that's the struggle. But I keep telling my own people, <clears throat> you, you're not, you weren't blindsided when you volunteered uh, to come down this time around. You volunteered to be here and you volunteered to be here now, knowing precisely the situation into which you were parachuting because you were coming down here to be emissaries of light and you have to kind of be prepared for the kind of the, uh, the contraction pains and the kind of labor pains of giving birth to Homo spiritualis. But you better know that you're going to be put through the ringer in the process. Yeah, it's a massive one. It's funny, uh, the, the the analogy you're using right now is the same one that Peter Crone used with me, you know, because he's, he's like, you... You say, I imagine you were a part of your children's birth. And I was like, yeah, I, I helped pull Bear out and we did a home birth with Wolf. And this was the master bedroom before we converted it. All the beds are upstairs now so the kids don't have to walk downstairs in the middle of the night. And um, I remember catching my little girl, you know, and like, and, and just being like that, that close to it. But that is as close as I can be to the experience as a man without actually giving birth myself, which is, 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 is an impossibility, contrary to what common people might say uh, uh, in the world right now. And that proximity shows in detail the, the, 
the absolute pain and full ceremony that takes place in childhood delivery. You know, and he used that same analogy. He's like, it's messy. There's blood. There's poop. There, <laughs> some people don't make it, right? Like, all these things are possible in that birthing process. And that really, really landed for me. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's been a mind fuck on the one hand, as I uncover more and more of this, you know, he, like uh, I was talking to, um, uh, I forget who I was chatting with, but I think it was Jamie Wheel um, in, you know, the guy who wrote Sapiens, Yuval Noah Harari, and then Homo Deus and 21 Problems for the 21st Century, right? Like I remember reading Sapiens, I was like, this is great. He kind of talks about animism like it's, you know, a thing of the past, not like, he doesn't understand it, you know, like he doesn't understand like that is what they were pointing to is the thing, right? Like this, everything is consciousness. Everything is intelligent. Everything has that animate intelligence. Um, so, you know, but, but all right, cool. I could, I could get with that. And then when he gets into Homo Deus, he kind of outlines like this is where humanity's handing, humanity 2.0, transhumanism, that kind of stuff. But now if you let it, listen to him on a World Economic Forum stage, He's saying literally, he's not beating around the bush anymore. He's like, we will be able to control every aspect of the human body through genetics. We will be able to, through nanotechnology, through CRISPR, through all the things. And he's pointing to what transhumanism actually means. But I don't think people are connecting the dots. Like, this is where they want to take a certain section of humanity is into this merger of, of human with machine. And it's not just to live to your a thousand or to upload consciousness into a machine. There are control mechanisms that go hand in hand with this. Like, it's like, is nobody else hearing the same shit I am? Like, why aren't alarm bells being rung? It's fucking mind-blowing. You're absolutely right. And I've, I've spoken so many times in homilies to my own community over the last year because, like you, I was really impressed with his, very, his first book. And then I read his second book, and then I started listening to his proclamations from the WEF. And I'm absolutely shocked, you know, at the viciousness of this mindset, the Klaus Schwab's of the world, you know, and the uh, Yuval Harari's of the world and the Bill Gates of the world that have an agenda for the human family, which has nothing got to do with uh, um, a kind of blossoming that which is beautiful and lovely and spiritual, suppressing completely and just making machines that can allegedly live forever. And so that's a great contest of our times, I believe. And I think it took a lot of courage you know, for human beings to volunteer to come onto this panel at this stage. I was talking uh, yesterday, actually, I've been looking at this phenomenon of free will. How free are we? You know, and uh, we, under- we misunderstand what free will is about. You know, for one person, free will is the ability to do as I please when I please, like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. And then that, that's not free will. And so free will is the ability to choose the good. So the only truly free person is somebody who's making choices for good again and again and again, because only that person is free from addiction, you know, and kind of a, and moodiness. The kind of the person who's indulging every particular whim is absolutely incarcerated um, by their own addictions of various kinds. And so when I, the conclusion I came to was that before we incarnated, we made choices to take part in uh, an incarnation that would have inbuilt restrictions and restraints. And I used the example of games. If you were playing a golf game 
or you're playing a soccer game, or you're playing an NFL game, or rugby, there are totally different rules. The ball is a different size, and some you're allowed to kind of interfere with the opposition to kind of charge them, others you can't. With soccer, you can't even handle the ball unless you're the goalkeeper, you know. Uh, in some, you have to wear helmets of various kinds. In others, there's no protection. So there's a different set of rules pertaining to each game, and you can't transpose them. And you freely accept the rules and the restraints of the game in order to uh, take part in it. And so in order to take part in the game called Incarnation on Planet Earth, you agree to a, a whole bunch of restraints. You agree to the fact that you have amnesia for who you really are and why you came. You agree to the restraint of having to operate with this tiny little laptop that we carry between our ears. This three-pronged mass of you know, wetware which is totally inadequate for to grokking the entire gestalt. And so we have to make up this notion of time in order to process sequentially little chunks of the reality because we can't process all of it at the same time. So we agree to all of these restrictions in order to take part in the game called Incarnation of Planet Earth. But we freely chose those. So we have free will. The free will was choosing the game. But in the game, there were restraints we've agreed upon. And a lot of people see those restraints as evidence that we don't have free will. And I'm saying we do have free will. The soul has the free will to choose to be part of an incarnational experience that's going to move the cosmos itself into a kind of a Christ consciousness or into a Buddha nature. So it becomes really, really important for us then. We're not here by mistake. We didn't you know, take a, a wrong turn that kind of Zorg and wind up in, in this galaxy by mistake. And so to embrace... The, the situations which we find ourselves, you know, and to dig deep into the uh, the soul self. I differentiate between what I call the role self, which is the character called Sean with an Irish accent that I'm temporarily playing, you know, for the next, you know, you know 70, 80 years or whatever. And then I talk about the soul self, which is the eternal aspect of me that was never born and would never die, but which is reincarnated many, many times. And then what I call the source self, that everything that exists is a holographic fractal of source. And so we have to kind of disidentify with lesser versions of the self in order to re-identify with greater versions of the self. And ultimately, the entire human trajectory is to give birth to God. And we're not finished incarnating and we're not finished you know, evolving until the entire universe itself gives birth to God. I love that. And I just want to, I don't want to jump right in. I just want to so, let that soak in for a second. Um, with that, is it a game of awakening and reawakening and reawakening in various forms and different factions throughout the cosmos until all reaches a certain level of awareness, in your opinion? I believe it is. And I think that there are, there are different dimensions and different planetary systems, which are people by souls who are much more advanced than we. You know, and they're dealing with their own version because the more evolved we become, the greater our abilities and the greater the temptations to which we're subjected. So it's not just like it's an easy ride that the more evolved you become, the easier it is for you. That's not necessarily the case. So that's the case, for instance, of a, of a, a Satan or Lucifer, the light being, really, really advanced beings, but their temptations are much greater. And so the side by side with the increase in the abilities is the increase in the temptations. So we're constantly needing to be on our toes, you know, to avoid the kind of, um, kind of the hubris of thinking, how great a guy am I? Uh, and so I think that various planetary systems 
and various dimensions for fourth or fifth dimensional beings you know, are undergoing the same process. And it's an eternal process. It's not like we finally reach a conclusion and everybody can kind of wave their brows and say, I'm glad we made it. Heaven is not a kind of a place. I would say to people in, when I was preaching in Swahili, I would say to them, Mbinguni si mahali, bali nihali. Heaven is not a place, it's a state of consciousness. And states of consciousness are constantly evolving into higher and higher levels. So the beauty of it is, you know, um, you never get to rest on your laws and you're never going to get bored. Because I used to think, okay, you get to heaven, you meet St. Peter, he has a quick look and says, yeah, you, you barely just squeezed in. Um, I'm assigning you to a row G, seat number 231, here's your harp, sit down and here's your music. And you're going to spend all eternity now strumming a harp. That's going to get really bored really fast. <laughs> really bored really fast. And so it's a constantly evolving phenomenon and going deeper and deeper and deeper into the ultimate mystery of, of love. So it is, it is never ending. Yeah, the never-ending piece has messed me up uh, more than once uh, on the deep dive journeys. You know, <laughs> like, like I think, um, you know, eternity can also be like, wow, all right, cool, there it is. It's, I'm never going to die, you know, and then you're like, oh, fucking eternity. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, like, uh, one of the first thoughts I had, if it, if it goes forever, then anything I do now is utterly meaningless, right? Like, it can circle back that far and then... You know, the counter to that is that in the eternal, now always matters. Now is the antidote to eternity, right? Like, and, and now, I just ask, you know, the, the small self, Kyle Kingsbury, what do you want to do right now? Like, that actually matters because that, that, uh, that thread is my thread in the golden tapestry, right? And so everything I do matters because it sets up what infinity looks like going forward. It also pertains to my personal experience in this meat suit, right now as, as how do I want to live? How do I want to show up? Who do I want to love? How do I want to love? And, um, and so, so it does, it does matter. There is a lot of meaning in the now, you know? Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Karen. And the reality is that we're energy beings, you know, according to Einstein's formula, E equals MC squared. Everything is ultimately reducible to energy. So every thought I have is an energy. Every word I speak is an energy. Every action I perform has an energy. And I'm like um, either a pebble dropped into a pond or a boulder dropped into a pond. There's going to be a ripple. And no matter how big the pond is and how irregular the perimeter is, at some stage, you know, the ripples are going to reach every single point of the perimeter. You know, even if they're not even discernible to the naked eye, but they're having an effect. And so it becomes really important. I'm not just having an effect on my future possibilities of whether I'm going to get to heaven or not. But actually, I'm affecting every single entity in the cosmos from angelic beings uh, to kind of fireflies and oak trees and bunny rabbits. Everything is being impacted, you know, however subtly by every thought I have and every word I speak. So it becomes really important to me that I do this with uh, a, a Christ consciousness, a realization that it is having an effect and that the effect I wanted to have is an effect of radiating love and life and liberty and laughter into the into the world. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> um, one of the things I absolutely loved, and I, I don't know, this is backtracking or mid-tracking or wherever, but I, I did think it was like, I think for, for me personally, you know, my parents were were great in that for many reasons. They were shit in other reasons, but they were great in many reasons religiously because um, 
even though my mom brought me to church and I was in Sunday school for a little while, once I was fed up with it around seven or eight years old, she didn't make me go. She was like, okay, you're fine. If it's not for you, it's fine. You'll find it later kind of deal. And my parents had spent, you know, 10 years doing transcendental meditation and looking into Eastern mysticism. And so, you know, I had books from Wayne Dyer and, and Eckhart Tolle and different things like that on my mom's shelf that I could just grab and thumb through in my twenties. Um, so it spoke to me in different ways, but so many things, you know, including like, you know, witnessing two guys kiss each other. And I was just like, oh, that, all right. Yeah. So they, those guys love each other. Cool. You know, like they're like, there is just like, it's an afterthought as a six or seven year old. Um, and then so many things that were like, oh, they're, those guys would burn in hell for eternity because they're like, there were so many, so many little pieces like that, that I was brought up on. I was like, how does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> it, even as a kid where before any plant medicine journey where I'd really grappled with, with any understanding of what eternity actually means to think of that, like they're gone forever in a shit spot for any reason, like they're, but they're your creation, right? So like, that's one of a, a, a handful of really, um, things that just don't add up, you know? And so I think about that and I love that you, you had the trial with Yahweh because it was so brilliant how you were able to go through piece by piece, line by line through the Torah and into the New Testament and, and put, put, put God on trial. It was fucking fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that the, the God that appears in most parts of the Canaan, particularly Torah, Genesis, Exodus, the biggest numbers, Deuteronomy, is a cosmic psychopath. He's the greatest serial killer of all time and the greatest mass murderer of all time, if we take his own word, you know, as, as the, the evidence. And so it's obvious to me that this was um, a human fabrication. You know, if this is who God really is, don't sign me up for heaven. I want to spend all my life in heaven playing a harp and praising this asshole. And so, <laughs> obviously, this is not who God is. And so I needed to put him on trial to bring a, a, a prosecution and a defense and find out that this is actually a caricature, a kind of a projection of the human shadow, and that we've created a God in our image and likeness rather than you know, acting in the image and likeness of the real divinity who underlines all, all of reality. And so it was an interesting exercise for me just to kind of to purge my own demons and to offer that as a kind of a, a template for anybody else who wants to do a serious study of who God might be for them. Yeah, I loved it. I also love that, you know, I've, I've, I've geeked out on Graham Hancock and a lot of different guys who kind of, you know, bridge, you know, what was our history? What is the amnesia that, that humanity suffers? And, and uh, you know, the the... I think it's the book of Enoch, you know, in the ancient Sumerian text where like Yahweh is one of other gods. And as he actually says that you'll worship me and no other gods, like there's actually a pointing to perhaps this dude was, was in form as an extraterrestrial and, and uh, you know, mankind as, uh, as um, you know, an uncultured, never seen the starship before just says, this is God, you know, like, like little G God. Um, but that, that, yeah, the fact that you brought that up, I was like, oh shit, there we go. <laughs> like, you're, you're not leaving any stone unturned here. And that still, that still makes more sense than an all-knowing, omniscient, all-loving God would do all the shit that God does, you know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament. It's like, no, like, like you have to, it makes, it does make more sense as far out as that sounds that this would be an off-planet deity that actually came here and, and had a lot of our same flaws and shadows to work through, you know, like jealousy and things of that nature. So I love that you brought that up in there as well. So it's interesting, actually, in the original version of the book that I wrote, I had two extra chapters 
one of them having to do with extraterrestrials and the possibility that we're talking literally about just one among many extraterrestrial races to visit the earth whom that made covenants with particular peoples. But my um, my uh, publisher decided that it should go into an appendix because the book was too long already. So I put it in an appendix and then he decided the book was still too long. I needed to drop them. So I had two whole chapters on that that didn't appear in the final version. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know what? That leaves the door open for another book because yeah. it's <laughs> funny. I, I think, you know, there there's there's certain things you can see, you know, and then we get little tidbits. So like on... on um you know, the, the carrot in front of the horse's mouth, look this way, look this way, that, that society's been led through. And, um, you know, we we had uh, terrorism, right? And then, you know, it's funny because we just had 9-11, you know, come back up and there's there's still people that just believe the media story on that. And they don't like, they're like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist if you talk about Tower 7 or the Pentagon. Like there's videos of a CNN reporter saying there's no evidence of an airplane here in front of the Pentagon. It was on CNN. All that shit got, got erased, but... Thanks to thanks to the internet, that shit still survives, right? You can actually see somebody from CNN at the Pentagon saying there's absolutely nothing here from an aircraft. The explosion must have come from something else. And, uh, and of course, Tower 7 its own deal. But think about things like that. A lot of people are still like, yeah, you know, bin Laden, some bad guys. It was terrorist. And then, you know, we had that's what that's what caused us going into Afghanistan and Iraq. And you're like, really? And the Patriot Act and all these other things. But to me, it, it's, it's hindsight's 2020. It's very easy to kind of see why, as it's happening, it's like, why is this happening? But in the background, you're like, oh, that's why they did that. Emergency powers, right? And then we see emergency powers get enacted in 2020. And we see the demolishment of uh, the middle class, of small business owners. We see all the new, you know, tyrannical implementations of, of what's happening in our school system and things like that. And fast forward, like some people now still have amnesia. Like everything's back to normal the way I wanted it to be and nothing's going to happen again. And, you know, what's funny is guys, I think is uh, O'Keefe, I forget his name, but um, he's been great on Twitter. He's been showing, um, you know, the, the underground videos where they'll sneak in a camera with the CNN reporters, right? And so they're talking about how like all we were talking was COVID and the whole next thing is going to be climate change. For the next several years, all we're going to do is warn people about climate change. That'll be the thing, right? And, and one thing that I've heard from a few different people is that beyond the climate change scenario, and of course, this is trying to create a, a one world government uh, or, or a totalitarian control system. Beyond that, it will be the alien threat, right? This is why we see Space Force. This is why, you know, Steve, Dr. Stephen Greer has talked about that. It's to, to plant little seeds so that we fear extraterrestrials. Whereas, if, you know, not to say that extra, all extraterrestrials are awesome, but they could have taken us over in a heartbeat. If they wanted to enslave humanity, they'd have been done already, right? So, but they're, they're planting that seed to instill fear. And another thing that's come along technologically is, is holograms. You can set up through drone technology something that will make a spaceship appear in the sky. And from any angle you look at it, you'll look up and you say, that's a fucking UFO. It's right above my head. And everyone in the city will say the same thing. And then it can vanish and it can move. It can do all these things, right? So thinking about that, um, I am curious at what point, because we've seen these, just these little droppings, like the Pentagon acknowledges uh, uh, certain things, you know, from the CIA become unclassified and like, all right, yeah, 1950s, we found bodies, we have alien spacecraft, we have different things, we're going to verify that, everything you guys suspected is true. No one talks about that, no one reports it, it goes on some obscure website and you're like, well, this is a government letterhead, like, this is the legit thing, you look into it like, 
different people that have worked, like uh, Pippa was on Aubrey Marcus's podcast and she had worked uh, in the Bush administration. She's like, it's 100% legit. It's on US government letterhead. They're acknowledging, you know, everything that's gone on since the 50s and it's kind of gone low key. And I, I, I really look at that and I wonder, is this like, is the only reason they're telling us about this stuff just so they can try to use that as another threat, as another scare to get us to all to hide and, 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 and bow down to whatever, um, you know, problem solution, problem reaction solution that they put in place for us? I think that's, that's always been part of the agenda of the, of the tyrant is to inculcate fear in the populace. And it's always like um, either a real crisis or a manufactured crisis that has the population crying out for salvation and, you know, and protection. And then the parent coming in and it's pre-planned because the crisis itself has been manufactured to create the reaction in the populace who will then agree to the uh, temporary suspension of civil liberties in order to get protection. But it's never, you know, a temporary suspension of civil liberties. They always continue. So it's always part of the plan. And so I always, I differentiate between, there's a hugely important distinction for me between uh, fact and truth. Something can be factual, but not true. And something can be true, but not factual. So my definition of truth is that something is true, if it transforms me and aligns me with God, and something is ultimate truth, if it transforms me radically and aligns me permanently with God, whereas fact is just a kind of a data point in the physical world. So they can point to factual stuff, but it is not truthful in the sense that it is not transformative. It's an agenda. They're just little breadcrumbs scattered around the ground to lead you where they want you to, to go. So you can say, yes, they're, they're actual factual pieces, but the intention behind them is to lead you into a trap and then spring it on you when you arrive there. And so I keep asking myself the question, what is transformative? And if it is not transformative, it is not true, even if it is factual. And my favorite example, I don't know if you remember from your kind of Bible school days, there's a great story that Jesus tells in, I think it's in uh, Luke's Gospel in chapter 15 of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story where uh, he's been quiz, quizzed by a, a theological expert about what's the greatest commandment about the 613 precepts in the law. And he says, the greatest one is, you love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind. And the guy says, well, what's the second one? And Christ says, the second one is, love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And then Christ, being a great storyteller, says, okay, here's a story. There was a certain man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he got mobbed. He got uh, 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 clubbed by a crowd of robbers and they left him for dead on the side of the road, stripped him naked and took everything he had and left him there. And some hours later, a priest from the temple was going down and saw a fellow Jew lying at the side of the road and he ignored him because for a priest to touch a dead body meant the priest was unclean and he couldn't go into the temple. So he ignored him and passed by. Some hours later, a Levite, who are the kind of the temple police under the same kind of restrictions sees a fellow Jew and he passes by. <clears throat> and then some months later, a Samaritan who were deadly enemies of the Israelites at the time sees this Jew die on the side of the road. He picks him up, attends to him, puts him on his donkey, takes him down to Jericho, takes him to a hotel, you know, gets some food. And he says to the innkeeper, I have to go off for a few days on business. You know, I'll come back. I'll pick up the tap for this guy. Look after him. And Christ says to the, the uh, theologian, which of those was neighbor to the man who fell among uh, the robbers? 
in the first place, obviously the Samaritan. Now, if you were a kind of reporter for the Jerusalem Post and says, there's something fishy about this story. I don't believe this is true. And you go to the temple and you knock at the door and the high priest comes out and you say, here's this, here's the scoop. Did this really ever happen? And the guy goes in, anybody here been in Jer Jericho in the last two months? No, 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 no. And you go over to the Levites. Anybody been here, here been in Jericho for the last two months? No, 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 no. And you go down to Jericho. There's only six hotels in Jericho. And you go from hotel to hotel to hotel. And you say, did this story ever happen? And the guy says, no bloody way. I don't recognize a Samaritan coming with a Jew and paying the time. <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot of cuddly wobbles. That never happened. And maybe it didn't. So was it factual? Possibly not. Was it true? Absolutely true. Because the people who understood that story are radically transformed. They realize your neighbor is everybody, especially those who are in distress of any kind. And so when I look at the trails, the breadcrumbs, I'm asking myself constantly, is this about transformation or is this literally about you know, seduction leading us into some kind of a bear trap? Even if it's factual, is it transformative or not transformative? I love that. I think that speaks to my final question for you. And you can elaborate on it if you'd, if you'd like. But the final question is just, you know, seeing, seeing how history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that, you know, we can look through many cycles of human history as far back as we actually track, which is a lot less than humans have been here. But, um, you know, understanding the mechanics of how civilizations have come and gone and that there has always been this power element over others, you know, and understanding, you know, the, 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 the three-pronged approach of what you see from, from uh, your visitor, you know, at, at, the, at the creek there, you know, the, the three-pronged approach that also knowing, you know, the stakes are as high as they could fucking get. You know, I, I can't imagine another game, you know, I can't imagine being at a pivot point, but we're, we're really coming to a pivot point. And, um, to me, I always scoffed at eternal damnation. I was like, there's no way God would ever cast aside something from itself and all is over, nothing is anyway. So what does he put you in like the toe of God? Like you're still in God, no matter where you go. Um, but one thing that I recognized, you know, on a, on a deep medicine journey was that if I chose to exit my body, if I chose to go into a simulation, if I chose, even if it's, I don't even think it's possible, but if I uploaded my consciousness or I went, you know, more cyborg than human, that that could disconnect me from my inherent gift of being connected to God at all times. And that would be some form of separation, however small. And that, that, could, be, that could be a route where that actually does take place. And to me, that, that's, I know I'm not going to make that choice, but it scares the shit out of me for, for other people. Um, what, what do you see as one of the most important things for us to know, to do, to understand with what we're coming up against here going forward? You know, with where we're at at this point in the crossroads, with, with what we know that's coming, um, what are you tracking as, as best moves for people? You know, and, and like I said, that story might have been it right there. But um. So for me, for me, Craig, the most important, the most important virtue of all is not even love. It is waking up. And I keep saying to my own people, you know, um, there is only one sin. You know, it is not stealing, you know, it's not kind of um, beating somebody up, you know. That's second order and third order tertiary results. The only sin is the refusal to awaken to your inner divinity. The only sin. And so whatever holds us kind of asleep, you know, that, that's the sin. 
And this has been orchestrated often by the people in charge. You know, the Romans had a phrase for it, it was called panes et circenses, bread and circuses. In other words, if you give people enough food, you know, and entertain them with like, you know, kind of a, I love Lucy or whatever, you know, keep glued to their television sets, you could do whatever you want with the kind of the body politic and people won't even notice. And so the greatest sin of all is to stay asleep. The only sin is to stay asleep. And so the, the most important virtue of all is to come awake. You cannot love unless you're awake. If you think you're loving, but you're awake, it's just merely mockish sentimentality. It is not real love. And so the, the primary kind of objective of all human beings is to wake up to the reality. And the reality is that there is only God. You know, I sometimes say to my own people that, you know, life is a dream that the ego is having, and the ego is a dream that the soul is having, and the soul is a dream that spirit is having, and spirit is a dream that God is having. So we're actually, we're nested dreams. Everything that exists is simply God in drag. So we got to look out for the God under the kind of the, uh, uh, in the drag. I love that. Sean, it's been, it's been so awesome having you on the podcast. I most certainly will have you back on here uh, as, as more unfolds within the world. I, I love your take on everything. Um, I will link in the show notes, Setting God Free and any other works that you've done. This is absolutely incredible and uh, a life-changing book. I, I really feel, you know, I, I have, I was talking to my wife earlier just and she gets, she's like, why are you so excited? I was like, well, because I get to interview Sean. Like, this is going to be the best. This is so good. I was trying to, you know, I've been trying to say your last name with an, with an Irish accent too, which is funny because it's spelled O-L-A-O-I-R-E. How do you say it? Olera. Olera. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fuck okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Gaelic. You know, my mother tongue is Gaelic. So in English, it would be O'Leary. You may have seen that written as O'Leary. O-L-E-A-R-Y. That's the end of the English version of it. Yeah. Cool. Oh, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. I love you deeply, and I thank you for all your work. And I'm excited that uh, in in trying times, we have people like you leading the way. I I am so happy that there are people like yourself and Paul Chick out there who have the cojones to do what you're doing, to waking up the world. A million a million thanks to you, Kai. Thank you, brother. Love you, my brother. <laughs>